You're listening to The Healthy Sensitive. Welcome, everybody, to The Healthy Sensitive, a podcast for highly sensitive people and introverts who want to live big and keep their health and their sanity while they do it. Uh, My name is Leah Burkhart. I'm your hostess on the show. And today, well, first of all, I want to apologize for having missed last week. I was busy fancifying it up over in Boston. So I went to a conference to get a whole bunch of new ideas and thoughts to bring to all of you. So that was uh, my motivation. It's just that the downside to that was it kind of made it difficult to do a podcast. So my apologies for that. But with that in mind and with that kind of quasi introduction, uh, today's topic is going to be on travel. Uh, When I was going through the motions of preparing for the trip and while I was going through the motions of getting on the airplane for said trip, because remember, I'm in Oregon right now and Boston is far away. (laughs) So airplane was kind of a requirement. Um, You know, I don't know if this is true. I I haven't seen any research to back this up. So I don't know how many highly sensitive people are obsessed with travel. But I certainly love it, and I find it to be tremendously valuable in my life. And my sense is that those that I speak with, those HSPs, I mean, also tend to love it. But they get stuck in this weird conundrum where, on the one hand, gee, I wish I could go travel. I want to go seek adventures. I want to meet new people. I want to get inspired because travel can be extremely inspiring and it can inspire bouts of creativity and it can be really invigorating. Just one problem. Um, to go to someplace new, you have to go to a place that's new and therefore probably expose yourself to some discomfort and unease. And so how do you find a way to get to where you want to go, enjoy yourself, but without taxing your system over much? So that's what today's podcast is going to be about. And for the last little tidbit, I will save some time for some of the, the little, like some nuggets that I took away from the, uh, what, what was this? The Health Coaching and Leadership, the 2019 Health Coaching and Leadership uh, Conference that was put on by Harvard. So it was fancy. Um, so I'll, I'll share some of the nuggets that I took away from that conference. If you want more details, highly recommend you jump on to the community site because I'm sharing them as we go. I'm, I'm going into a bit more detail with each of the, you know, the segments that I was, I had the fortune and, you know, blessing to be able to just sit and watch. I was such a nerd, people. You have no idea. Anyway, so if you want to hear more details, please jump on. Uh, I'll share all of that with you. Otherwise, I will stop yammering about it and just get to the podcast. So saith the girl that just spent the last three minutes yammering. Anyway, so the outline of what I'll be talking about. Uh, First, I want to touch on the HSP brain and what happens to an HSP brain when new new experiences are introduced. I always find that useful to kind of always bring it back to what is it like to be an HSP before I start talking about all the other stuff in the periphery of that. And then I want to talk a bit about, you know, what's the point in traveling? Why is that something that we should aspire to do? Why go through the trouble at all? And then from there, we'll talk about the challenges that highly sensitive people have with travel. I'll kind of link, you know, what is the brain of an HSP and how it might respond to the elements of travel. Um, What to pack to kind of make the experience more rewarding. 
less awful, um, how to plan ahead effectively, how to get a good night's sleep throughout the duration of this whole thing, and then arriving back home. So that's what we'll be discussing. So to begin with, the highly sensitive brain, how we are different. There's a I think there's there's several things that make us re- relatively unique, but the two big ones that I want to point to today are number one, we process dopamine a little differently. The how and the what this means of that is a little difficult to discern from what I understand. Those that have seen the differences are sort of like, like I don't know what it means. But what we do know about dopamine is that it's linked with and associated with rewards. So what seems to be the case is that dopamine isn't so much linked with the reward we get when we meet a need or, or desire. That's what we used to think. It's like, oh, I got a candy bar. Yay! Ching! Dopamine kick. But rather, it seems to be linked with the drive to seek the thing out. So the candy bar is delicious and I might get a little bit of dopamine, but mostly the dopamine drives me to the candy bar, the desire for the reward. So it's almost like it's encouraging. It's the magnet pulling me toward it. And for whatever reason, highly sensitive people have different, uh, it's like the dopamine receptors are a little different or our brains are a little less responsive to dopamine or perhaps more sensitive. It's not entirely clear. I keep digging through the research on this because I wanna know, it's like, is it that I'm so sensitive that I need so little dopamine and therefore that's why I don't need intense experiences or is it that I'm not sensitive to dopamine really at all and that's why I'm less responsive to external stimuli? And I keep trying to find the definitive answer on that and I just keep getting a wall of meh, we don't really know. (laughs) Like All we can say for sure is that you're different. So yeah, we process dopamine a little differently. Um, The impact that seems to have on highly sensitive people, this much we can just discern from subjective data. So qualitative data is what that would be called when someone is sort of just giving a story of their experience. And highly sensitive people, for whatever the reason may be, are less responsive to external rewards. That might be because we are so sensitive that we don't need very much of it. We get our fix met easily. It could just as easily be that we are not getting that fixed net at all and that we're not really that drawn to it, whatever the case may be. The other piece that I find really interesting is that we have a more active amygdala. Now, and I will tell you that this also came from the conference that I attended, the amygdala is up until very recently been associated with sort of the primal part of our brain. We call it the reptilian brain, which by the way is also a myth, this idea that there's a reptilian brain and then the... um, Oh, I keep wanting to say linguistic, but basically we it's the trifold brain theory that there's the primal part of our brain, the limbic system, and then there's like the prefrontal cortex. Turns out, no, everyone's brain is, and by everyone, I mean pretty much every creature with a brain basically has all the same stuff. We have a more developed prefrontal cortex perhaps, but it's not that this whole trifold brain thing um, is evidently just not true. So if you want more information about that, definitely come over to the membership page. I will nerd out with you all day long about, you know, amygdalas. (laughs) Anyway, so uh, we have a more active amygdala. We used to think that that was the primal, just me, man, me, smash. I want, I take part of the brain, the part of our brain that's instinctive. I want this thing. I will defend myself against an attacker, all of that. But that's not exactly it. It's a little more nuanced than that. The amygdala is in essence an alert system. 
It alerts us when there is something novel and unfamiliar, as well as something that could be potentially dangerous. So it's not just fear that ignites the amygdala. It's anytime we're exposed to something new. So if I'm walking into a classroom and the instructor, let's say he's going to teach physics, my amygdala is going to be lightning rod, just because I know very little about physics. The little I do know, I can just barely understand. And it seems like intellectually it should be very just... You would think the nerd in me would love it, and I do, but it doesn't seem to love me back. I see physics equations and I mistake them for elvish all the time. So two things are going to happen. On one hand, it's new, it's novel, it's unfamiliar. So that information is going to come to me. I'm going to be like, oh my god, I don't know what this is. So the amygdala is already ready to fire. And then on top of that, let's say the instructor is the Gandalf of my life in that he is between me and graduating <laughs> or something. I don't know. He, now I have fear as well as this uncertainty principle. So fear might be involved in the amygdala, but maybe not. Maybe I go in and I learn something about politics or law, which I actually had a great time with. I was super interested in it and my brain just seemed to kind of get it. Well, that would be great. The amygdala would still fire. And even though there would be no fear, it would be interest, there'd be curiosity. No fear, and yet still the amygdala would fire. And anyway, a highly sensitive person has a brain whose amygdala is pretty much, it's more sensitive and often more active. So what this, the combination of these things basically means we are more sensitive to novel experiences and we are less sensitive to external rewards. So there you have it. <laughs> Now you can also, just a side note here, be a highly sensitive person who is also a high sensation seeker. So you can have a situation where your brain is super receptive to dopamine and on top of that, have an active amygdala. That's a whole nother conversation. It's a different podcast altogether. But this is just what I'm using as the foundation for this topic on travel. So first, hold that thought, put a pin in it. What are the benefits of travel? Why would one want to go traveling? What would be, what, what, what do I get out of it? I mean, why, if I'm going to get stirred up and, and my amygdala is going to fire and that could be kind of uncomfortable, why would I want to bother engaging in it at all? Travel seems to make you healthier, especially if you're traveling on vacation, not just traveling for work. Uh, it can make you happier. So it, the novelty it can ignite curiosity and curiosity can help ignite a sense of meaning and fulfillment, and that generally makes us feel happy. It can improve social skills because, well, you're having to look at the world through a very different lens. Uh, it can reduce your risk of depression because, well, depression isn't really just being sad and having suffering. Depression is about not having a reason to live. Not <laughs> That's dramatic. It's not about being miserable because of suffering. It's about being miserable because there's nothing to look forward to. Well, you're going to reduce your risk of depression if you've just given yourself something new to look forward to. And it can improve creativity, which we've all, I know I've discussed before, is extremely valuable for highly sensitive people. Whether or not you're good, quote unquote, at your creative enterprise, having something that you enjoy doing is extremely beneficial in the creative realm because then it can help you process otherwise difficult content to, that content that would otherwise be difficult to process if you didn't have this as an outlet. So all of these are the benefits one would glean from travel. So now, with that in mind, 
what is the challenge that HSP have with travel? Because, I mean, you're in the situation where you might be at HSP and you want to go because you want to have, you know, healthier, a healthier life, a happier life. You want to improve social skills. You, you don't want depression and you'd love to have more creativity. Hell yeah, sign me up. Let's do this. Well, first of all, travel is extremely stimulating. That gets back to that whole amygdala thing. And stimulation for HSP, it's not always bad, but it can feel very uncomfortable. Uh, novel experiences can also be stressful. So even though they can be invigorating, you know, it's like you can go to a concert and there's such a thing as a concert that's too loud. HSP might find it harder to sleep. The adjustments in their, you know, like the whole jet lag thing. HSPs are going to be even more affected by that. Um, HSP might find it harder to sustain self-care practices because we're so busy trying to be in harmony with the people around us or be attentive to what we see around us. And we're so busy trying to hone those social skills with the people that we're traveling and seeing, we might forget about our own needs. And it might be more challenging to find time in a quiet space. If you're in a hotel room that you didn't know it was going to be loud, but there you have it and you're stuck. That's where you decided to stay and you can't cancel your reservation. Um, so yeah, these are some of the challenges that a highly sensitive person might have with travel. And I'm going to give a little bit of my backstory. I, I believe, again, I don't have a brain scan of my skull or anything, but I am actually one of those that people that is a high sensation seeker as well as a highly sensitive person. So I love novel experiences. I love intense music. I love uh, the thrill of trying something new, of meeting someone new. I also don't love highly stimulating situations. I don't love lots of noise. I don't love lots of frenetic energy. So I'm, in, I'm just a real, let's face it, I'm just kind of a pain in the ass. So, I mean, you can imagine trying to hang out with me while traveling. I used to hate getting onto an airplane. And it wasn't because I was afraid the thing was going to crash. That wasn't my shtick. I wasn't afraid that I was going to die. I was pretty sure that, you know, st I mean, my, my brain, amygdala, you know, even with my amygdala firing like crazy, my prefrontal cortex was still able to say, Leah, statistically speaking, you're less likely to die in a plane crash than you would be in a car crash. And you get in the car every damn day, so get over it. So that wasn't my shtick. Um, it was the idea that I'd have to sit for hours in a space with other people and all their germs I didn't even consider myself a germaphobe. It was just like, ooh, I have to spend six hours with these other humans and I can't leave. There's nothing I can do. I'm stuck. I don't like sitting for long periods of time. Even right now, as I'm recording this podcast, I'm standing and I'm using a standing desk. I don't like long durations of sit. <laughs> uh, I don't love the time change because I was already such a troubled sleeper. It. I mean, I've had trouble with sleep since I was old enough to be young enough where, well, let's just say since I was seven, six, seven or eight years old, it's been a thing. And so for me to develop a routine and a set of practices where I sleep regularly, that took me well, kind of a lifetime so far. It's, it, it's taken me my whole life so far, all through three years to get to this place. So when I first started embarking on new travels, uh, the first time I traveled was when I went to Ireland which was super, I loved Ireland. It was so, so cool. And so you can imagine, I have to get an airplane for hours. And, uh, you know, I arrive and it's in the middle of winter because that's when I had the time, winter break. 
And I am, this was before smartphones, mind you. So there was no, oh, just, I have Facebook. It's like, oh no, that's not going to happen. If you don't know where you're going, you better find a map somewhere. So God, isn't that incredible to think about? Just 10 years ago, different world. Anyway, um, I think smartphones existed at that time. It was just, I didn't have one yet. Anyway, uh, (laughs) so... What happened on this trip? How am I, all the things that went wrong? Let me count the ways. So I had a few connecting flights. That was not fun. Fortunately, I was smart enough to know better than to check in bags. So I just only had my backpack. So good job, Leah Poo. Went over to Ireland, or first went to um, to Canada, from Canada, from Calgary, Canada to Heathrow, London, and then from there it was going to be Dublin, Ireland. It was the cheapest flight. What do you want? Anyway, so I get to Heathrow, London, and I don't know if you've ever been to Heathrow, but something you need to understand about it is that it is not an airport. If you think it's an airport, you're sadly mistaken. It is a city, <laughs> or at least it felt like one to me. It's just unbelievable how many gates and you just hallway after hallway after hallway. And at the time, at least, I had to go through, I don't even remember how many checkpoints. It was absurd. And I understood, I mean, again, I'm this person from the United States of America, not from their country, and they would very much like for me to be able to say with some amount of certainty that I am not, in fact, going to cause any harm to their people. Totally get it. But I was frantic because I was worried I wasn't going to make it on my plane on time. And somewhere between checkpoint five and six, six being the final one, there was some mis- dis- like disconnect between the point where they were going to take my picture and the point where they were going to say, yes, we see it. So they sent me back to go take my picture. But then I lo- like left my passport at checkpoint six as I had to run back to checkpoint two where my picture was taken. So I finally just say, okay, um, there's no way I'm going to make it. There's absolutely no way. So I go trotting on over to the, um, I don't know what this would be. I guess it would be security or their version of a help desk. I'm, not, I'm really not sure, but there was a woman who was standing behind the desk, I guess, I guess services. I'm not really sure. And I just said, okay, um, I no longer feel like I have any hope of making my flight. I just understand that that's hap- like, that's not happening. There's no way. Having said that, uh, I, I can't find my passport. I had it. And the last time I remember it was at a gate. And somewhere in between, I don't know if I dropped it. I don't know if I left it. I don't know. I don't know what to do. So if you could help me just get my passport so that I can go home at some point, since it's clear I'm not going to Ireland, (laughs) uh, that would be wonderful. And this woman, I mean, I don't pray often. I don't really pray much at all. That's not really my thing. But if I did... Anytime I do, believe me, this woman would be in my prayers because she was absolutely amazing. She stopped what she was doing, saw the pathetic mess that was me, and said, okay, you've clearly gotten this far, so here's what we're going to do. Let me just take a look at your bag and make sure there's nothing in it that I should be worried about. So she does, and she said, okay, no problem. So she walked me to checkpoint one, where I could take my picture. She walked me through. Um, she was able to kind of get me to bypass some of the lines. I mean, again, she, it wasn't like she was saying, ah, don't worry about it. You don't have to go through security. She was absolutely doing her job diligently, but she, in essence, just helped me kind of gave me a VIP pass when I probably did not deserve one. She called the, um, like all of the different gates and did find that yes, in fact, the last checkpoint did have my passport. I left it when I was running off to go get my picture taken. Uh, so everything was fine. 
I was allowed to go through the final checkpoint. I got into the gate. I got, in, you know, beyond sat in the airplane. Like I had my seatbelt buckled and within a moment, the pilot said, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we are getting ready for our launch. <laughs> so that was my first experience traveling. And then when I arrived, I didn't know where I was going. There was no way for me to just kind of take, uh, you know, there, there was no map on my phone. I just had to do the whole asking questions of people who like looking, you know, properly pathetic and saying, hi, I'm trying to get to this hostel. Can you help me? <laughs> so it was all kinds of crazy. And still, and perhaps even because of the fact that I had to go through all of that, I, I it was such a rewarding experience. I, I loved it. I slept barely at all. I was exhausted. I got super sick, and I don't mean sick to my stomach. I mean, I caught a terrible cold. There was all kinds of things that was just all kinds of crazy. But I loved that I did it, and it made me feel good that I was willing to embark on something like that. And after that, I went traveling with a companion. In this case, it was a gentleman I was dating. He was the master of travel, and I think he still is. So he didn't, you know, no stress. He, he could not comprehend why I would be so stressed about travel because it really doesn't have to be that complicated, Leah. It, it just logic, just plan ahead. And he didn't say it in a condescending way ever. But anyway, he and I would go traveling and I got to see firsthand what it was like to be in the presence of one who's not stressed about travel really at all. I say all of this to you, my dear listeners, and blabbering on and on, to give you some context. It used to be that when I traveled, I just had to understand I would not be sleeping. I had to understand I would be exhausted. I had to understand that uh, I would probably get sick. Uh, in the case of Peru and Guatemala, I got deathly ill uh, and not the, you know, sniffles kind of ill, but the uh, other kind. Um, so I just had to understand this was that was going to be the way that travel I, I was going to travel. And it, it would be the, the price I'd have to pay, which seemed like a really crappy price. In the case of Peru and Guatemala, I guess that was literal. But anyway, as I said, I bring this all up to be able to give you an example of an HSP who wanted to travel very badly, but did not necessarily want to suffer in the process. And what I can say, I'm delighted to say, is that I've developed some tools to be able to get the best of both worlds, to travel, to enjoy my traveling, and to come back in one piece, feeling rested and even if a little tired, um, not frazzled and in need of a massive battery recharge. So the first thing that I'll say that has helped me, I have gotten better at planning ahead. So before your trip, some things that can help my dear HSPs, um, pack strategically. Do not, under any circumstances, I beg of you, check in bags. It is such a pain in the arse. It's terrible. You gotta put, it's not the whole checking it in thing. I mean, you gotta wait in line. That's just whatever. It's the part about, well, once you've checked in your bags, then you're in the situation where you have to hope that when you arrive, the bags will be there. And often they are not. Or maybe I just have really crappy luck. I don't really know. But what I do know is that I always keep my bag small enough. So none of this, you know, almost a carry-on but might be considered actual luggage bullshit. No, don't do that. Don't be that guy or that girl. Not a good life choice. I carry all of my stuff in a backpack. And if as far like this is my philosophy. 
if the backpack does not fit in the seat, like fit underneath the seat in front of me, it ain't going. So I am a very light packer. I highly recommend you do that. There's something just very relief providing, relieving. I don't know what the right word to say there would be, but it's extremely gratifying to know that everything you need is in the bag right in front of you. And if you don't want to move for the entire duration of your trip, you don't have to. Your bag is right there in front of you. It's glorious. I will say it does also help that I'm five foot three. If you're tall, that, that might be less feasible for you. Don't know. Uh, pack earplugs and a mask. And I don't mean a mask like the iron mask. I mean like eye mask to something to like a, no, what do they call it? Think actresses that when they go to sleep, they put that over their eyes so that the, the light doesn't hit them. That's what I mean. How might this help? Well, when you have earplugs and an eye mask, if you don't want to talk to other humans, and I like humans well enough, but I don't really want to talk to them when I'm traveling, or at least not on an airplane. It's great. No one bothers you. Nobody. You don't have to fake nice with someone that you don't actually want to talk to on the trip there. It's beautiful. It's just pop, pop, eye mask. Done. Uh, you can also bring, like, you know, music or an audiobook. You can plug in your smartphone if you'd like. All of that works as well. I just really prefer, I like kind of going back and forth, I suppose, but I really like silence. Also depends on what time of day I'm traveling. That makes a difference. Anyway, bring comfortable clothing. When you get into the airport, do not wear your cute clothes. Or if they're cute, that's fine, but make them your yoga cute clothes. You know, if you're a dude, wear sweatpants, your tennis shoes. Hell, if you've got the weather, if the weather's nice enough, wear flip-flops. It just, you know, you're already going to be all cramped up in this tiny little space. Don't make it worse. You might even consider bringing essential oils. I used to bring them, I'd like have uh, lavender essential oils and I would put it like just a tiny drop on my fingertips and then just rub right underneath my nose, like between my lip and my nose. So I don't mean like I'm sniffing essential oils. It's not like lavender meets crack cocaine or something, but just enough so that I would be able to scent lavender. That's a scent that is very soothing to me, but whatever soothing to you. Um, also bring snacks, bring water. Don't bring water from your house because they'll take your water away from you. But when you get to the other side, you can, in fact, bring snacks. So people who tell me, oh, it's so hard going to the airport. You have to eat the food there because they don't. Nah, -uh. they'll let food travel. Like you can take snack bars, no problem, especially if you're flying domestically and even internationally. If you have like a protein bar, um, there's, you know, almonds, nuts, seeds, like you're fine. There's no problem there. So you can absolutely bring your own food. You just can't bring your own liquids. And to the extent that you can't bring your own liquids, that's fine. You can, fine, pay the extra $3 for a $1 bottle of water. No biggie. Also, when I say plan ahead, plan your hotel room and plan it in a, like, do your homework. Is it close to the airport? Can you get, can you easily get to the hotel room? Is there public transportation? Are you planning on taking said public transportation? Is it safe? What is the easiest, like, is the hotel room in a quiet place in town? Is it got good ratings? Is it got good ratings? Wow. Does it have good ratings? Sigh. Um, schedule alone time. Like, where is your alone time going to be throughout the duration of the trip? How will you find it in the airplane? How will you find it when you arrive? You know, and find quiet spaces to tour. You know, plug those little things into your trip. And you can always change it up. If you decide when you arrive that you're actually filled with energy and you don't need to do 
all of that fancy pants work to keep yourself calm, all the better. But if you've planned ahead, it's just one less thing to have to worry about. Anyway. So, oh, also, last thing I want to say, plan to have downtime before and after your trip. So if you're planning on leaving on a Friday, coming back the following Friday, take Thursday before that Friday off and the Saturday, well, I would even say Friday to Friday, you'd get Saturday and Sunday, I guess. But you want at least one day before you travel and after you get home to bookend your trip. Um, It'll be tremendously helpful. Uh, da, 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 da. Let's see, on the plane, I already talked about that. Um, earplugs, eye mask, meditation. Ooh, this is a thing too. I used to hate being on an airplane because I found it anxiety provoking. And again, not from the sense that I thought I was going to die or I was going to crash, but I just, oh, I can't leave and I feel boxed in. And then I was talking to a gentleman, he was the CEO of the startup that I was working with. And he said, are you kidding? I love flying. It's like digital nirvana. Nobody can get a hold of me. It's fabulous. I thought, whoa, I hadn't really ever thought of it that way. Interesting. So now whenever I fly, I just treat it like enforced meditation. It's like, okay, so if it's a six hour trip, in this case, going to Boston, it was five and a half. Can I meditate for five hours straight? Like what an interesting challenge. And most of the time the answer is no. I might listen to music or read a book, but it's a fun, it makes it fun now. Now when I sit in an airplane, even when I was coming on my way back from Boston, there was a woman sitting next to me and you could tell she was not happy to be flying. She was where I was <laughs> five years ago. And when we landed, she said, my God, you didn't get up once. Like I didn't get up to use the bathroom or, you know, fidget or whatever. And I said, no, I, I didn't really need to, I guess. And I, I just kind of like to use it as a time to just sit quietly and meditate. She said, you can meditate for five hours? And I said, Evidently, yes. (laughs) Yes, I can. I'm sure I dozed every once in a while, but you don't have to meditate for five hours if you don't want to. But I mean, basically what I'm saying here is treat it like an opportunity. You take the tools with you that you need to be able to just relax on this trip and treat it like a, a challenge. A challenge of, ooh, how long, you know, how many books can I get through? Or how relaxed can I be? Or whatever. Whatever it is that, you know, you're interested in. Meditation for me because I'm a health coach. So obviously I'd be into meditation. Uh, also, turn off the air that's pointed at you. Unless you're flying internationally. Fun fact. When you're on an international plane, they circulate air from the outside in. So you're less likely to get infections from the other people around you because you're not just stuck breathing in the same air. This was told to me by a flight attendant. So if this is not actually true information, then she lied to me. (laughs) She's my source. Anyway, but domestically, they just recirculate the same air that's been going through the airplane. So you're more likely to get ill when you fly domestic or if there's someone else that's sick on the plane, I mean. And on top of that, if you really want to increase your chances for getting sick, you leave the air vent that's blowing air down open and have it just, you know, like just showering you with the air. So if you turn that off and just kind of let it, you know, you're still going to be able to breathe, but it's like the equivalent of turning the AC off in your car. You reduce your risk of getting those germs just kind of flooding into your system. And I also find that I get less dry, my skin gets less dry, uh, and I, you know, I just appreciate it more. So something to think about. I mentioned aromatherapy. Ah, lotion. So one of the another reason why we're more likely to get sick when we're in an airplane, beyond the fact that it can be stressful, 
and therefore taxing to our immune system, is that it dries our skin out, which I know I mentioned. So if I have dry skin, dry skin, <laughs> dry skin, and it cracks, if I put lotion on it, or rather when it cracks, I'm more susceptible to picking up germs and for them those germs to get inside of my system. Versus nice moist hands with supple skin, less likely to pick up the germs and for it actually to infiltrate. I'm making my skin a little bit more um, protective. So lotion can be great, as is chapstick. Um, when you're waiting for your service and they say, would you like something to drink? I highly recommend hot tea or even just hot water. The moisture that when you guys are sort of sipping the, the heat, you know, the, the hot beverage, you can kind of breathe it in, you know, mm, like you would with a nice glass of wine, except it's really boring Lipton tea. You can kind of, the, the moisture and steam that goes in your nostrils, it helps to moisten it, which again, reduces your risk for illness. Fun fact. Uh, you might want to consider bringing a blanket, uh, soothing music, and or preloaded audiobook. I know I mentioned that already. So these are things to have on the plane. Practices while abroad. So meditation. Don't stop your meditation practice. Find time, ideally 20 minutes a day or more. You know, if you only have five minutes, no biggie. Still exercise. And I would say exercise is particularly helpful when you're really fatigued. Like when I landed in Boston, I was tired. I, I wanted to go take a nap, but I'm like, nope. I immediately got up. I went outside. I walked my 15,000 steps. I'm like, I'm still going to walk. And what's helpful about that is it forces you outside. You're getting access to the sunlight, which is helping to kind of get you, you know, your melatonin production in alignment with your new environment. And you're making, you're getting, you know, checking out all that cortisol that you might have gotten stirred up while in the airplane. You're just kind of blowing off steam. You're, you're, what do they call it? There's a great Southern, it's like blow the stink off or something like that. Yeah, I don't remember. But anyway, exercise. I would say as much as like try and walk or get moving at least an hour a day. And I don't mean like, uh, 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 I'm walking, but even just touring or, you know, just meandering. I just mean be outside, get out there, move. Also have plenty of time for rest. Try and stay in bed 10 hours each day. So that doesn't mean you have to be asleep the whole time, but just relaxing. Ideally, you're sleeping like eight hours a day in a perfect world. I'll let you know when I get there. Um, I'm usually somewhere between seven to eight now. Woot, woot. It's kind of exciting for a previous insomniac like me. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> eat well. And by well, I mean uh, have protein and complex carbs in every meal and snack. And uh, process your experience. Maybe bring a journal. Bring something that allows you to kind of digest the experiences that you're having. Uh, what do you get for all this effort? You know, because, you know, it's interesting. There was a gentleman... There's a reason we're no longer dating, but uh, we did date for a while, and he was most certainly not an HSP by any stretch of the imagination. It's probably my fascination with him and my admiration for him. He's the thickest of skins. Uh, and he had said, God, I would hate to be an HSP. You have to do so much work just to, like, exist. That sounds awful. And I took that in. And I thought, well, not really. I mean, yes and no. It's a bummer that we have to work so hard. But what we get in compensation is, you know, when I travel, I don't just go like, oh, yeah, this is a nice city. I was in Boston and I was exuberant. I'm like, whoa, everything was interesting. My amygdala was firing like crazy, but that's not because I was afraid. It was because I was just aware 
I was on fire. It's like, well, everything is new. Everything is exciting. Uh, you get refreshing ideas. Like I, was, I had gotten kind of stuck in my routines and, you know, easily obsessed with, you know, boy trouble or boy whateverness or, um, you know, obsessed with work and job or this or that. And to just travel and see something new, it, it reinvigorated me. It got me back into just being really freshly excited about my work and, and you know, I'm learning new things and I'm seeing new things. It's just, it was amazing. Um, expanded my viewpoint. I even got some relaxation because I wasn't working, quote unquote. I, I was learning and I was, I'm going to use that for my work, but I wasn't working in the same way. Um, and there was the spark of curiosity, which is linked with well-being, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Now, coming back home. One thing I will say, a lot of people are like, oh yeah, when I get home, I'm just going to go right back to work. No, no, don't do that. Bad idea. Set realistic expectations. Plan at least a day to recover. Take it easy. Exercise when you land, once again. You know, nothing crazy, but outside if you can. And you might even consider taking some melatonin when you're ready to go to sleep if you're worried about your sleep schedule getting kind of thrown off. So now, um, the teaser of what I learned when I, when I was at this conference. Again, I was in Boston, got to stay in a snazzy hotel, got to hang out with some really smart people. Um, some of the topics that were covered, how emotions actually work. Some of the myths about emotions were debunked. And I thought that was fascinating. So, yeah. Our expressions, it turns out, are not universal. So if I make a frowny face, maybe that means I'm angry, but it could also just mean I'm concentrating. Or it could mean that I'm in a moment of rapture. As in, you know, like the, the scowl you might give in a moment of victory where you're like, yes! That can look like rage. But it might be victory. You don't really know. So, and it's also not universal. It's not universal within countries, and it's not universal across countries. Uh, let's see. The tri-level brain theory, the idea of there being a reptilian, a limbic, and then a prefrontal cortex, that's actually not true at all. Kind of interesting. Uh, next thing I learned, curiosity is a key ingredient for well-being, and in fact might even be more interesting than just happiness in its own right. We learned about the benefits of meditation, and more specific is, you know, everybody knows meditation is good for you, but just how good I was legitimately startled. It keeps your neuroplasticity intact, it uh, keeps your IQ intact across the ages, it reduces anxiety, your risk for depression, improves your sense of well-being, uh, improves your sleep, which I can account to, I, I can testify to. Anyway. We also learned about inclusion, as in how to have inclusive conversations and create dialogue that uh, allows everyone a voice. And finally, what it means to really give yourself permission to feel. And not just the emotional intelligence, but like really going deeper and getting more what uh, this gentleman, Mark Brackett, called granular about your emotions. So if you want more of the details on that, please, please, please come to uh, the membership site. So if you go to www.thehealthysensitive.com and you click on join the community, it's only $5 a month and you can hear all the tidbits. You can hear me nerd out. I'd be delighted to have you. You can share your thoughts. Uh, and before I go, I also want to talk about possible resources from the, so if you don't want to do that and you just want to go straight to the source, these are some of the names that I heard from when I was at the conference. So Lisa Feldman Barrett, she wrote the book, How Emotions Are Made. Todd Cashton, he wrote, curious, question mark. 
Mark Brackett, who wrote Permission to Feel, uh, Jennifer Brown, who wrote the book Inclusion, and Sarah Lazar, who is of the Lazar Lab, which I think is kind of cool. And so yeah, like I said, if you want more details, go to thehealthysensitive.com, click on join the community. For $5 a month, you can get summaries of the conference and other conferences that I attend, access to all online e-courses, or if you just want to purchase you know, each, you know, any of my e-courses individually, you're of course welcome to do that. Uh, updates on upcoming, uh, on my upcoming book, uh, tips and tricks for how to stay sane in an, as an introvert and or HSP in a very stimulating world. So that's pretty much it, folks. Thank you very much for letting me jab on and on and on. And my apologies again for missing last week, but I swear it was for a good cause. I, I hope everything's going well with you. As always, and I can't say this enough, if ever you want to reach out to me, please don't hesitate. Uh, you can do that by going to uh, the main page of my website, www.thehealthysensitive.com. There's a contact me sheet right there in the front. And you can just kind of say, hey, I'm just interested in, I don't know, whatever it is you're interested in. Uh, or if you would like to set up a call, if you'd like to chat, I'd be delighted. This is my passion. So I'm uh, delighted to have any conversation that you want to have around these topics. All right, so I think that's just about it for today. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.